Book Fifth of the Joyful Wisdom, Part One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Joyful Wisdom by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. Book Fifth. We fearless ones. Carcass to tremble, to tremble I beyond davantage, si tu savai, ou je t'y mean, Turin. Three four three. What our cheerfulness signifies. The most important of more recent events, that quote, God is dead. Unquote, that the belief in the Christian God has become unworthy of belief, already begins to cast its first shadows over Europe. To the few, at least, whose eye, whose suspecting glance, is strong enough and subtle enough for this drama, some sun seems to have set, some old profound confidence seems to have changed into doubt. Our old world, must seem to them daily more darksome, distrustful, strange, and quote, old. Unquote. In the main, however, one may say that the event itself is far too great, too remote, too much beyond most people's power of apprehension. For one to suppose that so much as the report of it could have reached them not to speak of many who already know what had really taken place, and what must all collapse now that this belief had been undermined, because so much was built upon it, so much rested on it, and had become one with it, for example, our entire European morality, this lengthy, vast, and uninterrupted process of crumbling, destruction, ruin, and overthrow, which is now imminent. Who has realized it sufficiently today to have to stand up as the teacher and herald of such a tremendous logic of terror, as the prophet of a period of gloom and eclipse, the like of which has probably never taken place on earth before? Even we, the born riddle readers, who wait, as it were, on mountains posed twixt today and tomorrow, and ingirt by their contradiction, we, the firstlings and premature children of the coming century, into whose sight especially the shadows which must forthwith envelop Europe should already have come, how is it that even we, without genuine sympathy for this period of gloom, contemplate its advent without any personal solicitude or fear? Are we still, perhaps, too much under the immediate effects of the event? And are these effects, especially as regards ourselves, perhaps the reverse of what was to be expected? Not at all sad and depressing, but rather like a new and indescribable variety of light, happiness, relief, enlivenment, encouragement, and dawning day? In fact, we philosophers and quote, free spirits, 
unquote, feel ourselves irradiated as by a new dawn by the report that the quote, old god is dead unquote. our hearts overflow with gratitude astonishment presentiment and expectation at last the horizon seems open once more granting even that it is not bright our ships can at last put out to sea in the face of every danger every hazard is again permitted to the discerner the sea our sea again lies open before us perhaps never did such a quote, open sea unquote, exist three four four to what extent even we are still pious it is said with good reason that convictions have no civic rights in the domain of science it is only when a conviction voluntarily condescends to the modesty of a hypothesis a preliminary standpoint for experiment or a regulative fiction that its access to the realm of knowledge and a certain value therein can be conceded always however with the restriction that it must remain under police supervision under the police of our distrust regarded more accurately however does this not imply that only when a conviction ceases to be a conviction can it be admitted into science does not the discipline of the scientific spirit just commence when one no longer harbours any conviction? It is probably so. Only it remains to be asked whether, in order that this discipline may commence, it is not necessary that there should already be a conviction and in fact one so imperative and absolute that it makes a sacrifice of all other convictions one sees that science also rests on a belief there is no science at all quote, without premises end quote. the question whether truth is necessary must not merely be affirmed beforehand but must be affirmed to such an extent that the principle belief or conviction finds expression that quote, there is nothing more necessary than truth and in comparison with it everything else has only secondary value end quote. this absolute will to truth what is it is it the will not to allow ourselves to be deceived is it the will not to deceive for the will to truth could also be interpreted in this fashion, provided one includes under this generalization, quote, I will not deceive, unquote, the special case, quote, I will not deceive myself, unquote. But why not deceive? Why not allow oneself to be deceived? Let it be noted that the reasons for the former eventuality belong to a category quite different from those of the latter one does not want to be deceived oneself under the supposition that it is injurious dangerous or fatal to be deceived in this sense science would be a prolonged process of caution 
foresight and utility, against which, however, one might reasonably make objections. What? Is not wishing to be deceived really less injurious, less dangerous, less fatal? What do you know of the character of existence in all its phases to be able to decide whether the greater advantage is on the side of absolute distrust or on absolute trustfulness? In case, however, of both being necessary, much trusting and much distrusting, whence then should science derive the absolute belief, the conviction on which it rests? that truth is more important than anything else, even than every other conviction? This conviction could not have arisen if truth and untruth had both continually proved themselves to be useful, as is the case. Thus, the belief in science, which now undeniably exists, cannot have had its origin in such a utilitarian calculation, but rather in spite of the fact of the inutility and dangerousness of the quote, will to truth, unquote, of quote, truth at all costs, unquote, being continually demonstrated quote, at all costs. Unquote. Alas, we understand that sufficiently well, after having sacrificed and slaughtered one belief after another at this altar. Consequently, quote, will to truth, unquote, does not imply, quote, I will not allow myself to be deceived, unquote, but there is no other alternative, quote, I will not deceive, not even myself, Unquote. And thus we have reached the realm of morality. For let one just ask oneself fairly, quote, Why wilt thou not deceive? Unquote. Especially if it should seem, as it does seem, as if life were laid out with a view to appearance, I mean, with a view to error, deceit, dissimulation, delusion, self-delusion, and when, on the other hand, it is a matter of fact that the great type of life has always manifested itself on the side of the most unscrupulous polytropy. Such an intention might perhaps, to express it mildly, be a piece of quixotism, a little enthusiastic craziness. It might also, however, be something worse, namely, a destructive principle hostile to life, quote, will to truth, unquote, that might be a concealed will to death. Thus the question, why is there science, leads back to the moral problem. What in general is the purpose of morality? If life, nature and history are, quote, non-moral, unquote, there is no doubt that the conscientious man, in the daring and extreme sense in which he presupposes by the belief in science, affirms thereby a world other than that of life, nature, and history, and in so far as he affirms this quote, other world, unquote, what? 
must he not just thereby deny its counterpart this world our world but what i have in view will now be understood namely that it is always a metaphysical belief on which our belief in science rests and that even we knowing ones of today the godless and anti-metaphysical still take our fire from the conflagration kindled by a belief a millennia old the christian belief which was also the belief of plato that god is truth the truth is divine but what if this itself always becomes more untrustworthy what if nothing any longer proves itself divine except it be error blindness and falsehood what if god himself turns out to be our most persistent lie three four five morality as a problem a defect in personality revenges itself everywhere an enfeebled lank obliterating self-disavowing and disowning personality is no longer fit for anything good it is least of all fit for philosophy quote, selflessness unquote, has no value either in heaven or on earth the great problems all demand great love and it is only the strong well-rounded secure spirits those who have a solid basis that are qualified for them it makes the most material difference whether a thinker stands personally related to his problems having a fate his need and even his highest happiness therein or merely impersonally that is to say if he can only feel and grasp them with the tentacles of cold prying thought in the latter case i warrant that nothing comes of it for the great problems granting that they let themselves be grasped at all do not let themselves be held by toads and weaklings that has ever been their taste a taste also which they share with all high-spirited women how is it that i have not yet met with any one not even in books who seems to have stood to morality in this position as one who knew morality as a problem and this problem as his own personal need affliction pleasure and passion it is obvious that up to the present morality has not been a problem at all it has rather been the very ground on which people have met after all distrust dissension and contradiction the hallowed place of peace where thinkers could obtain rest even from themselves could recover breath and revive i see no one who has ventured to criticize the estimates of moral worth i miss in this connection even the attempts of scientific curiosity and the fastidious groping imagination of psychologists and historians which easily anticipates a problem and catches it on the wing without rightly knowing what it catches 
with difficulty i have discovered some scanty data for the purpose of furnishing a history of origin of these feelings and estimates of values paren which is something different from the criticism of them and also something different from a history of ethical systems end paren in an individual case i have done everything to encourage the inclination and talent for this kind of history in vain as it would seem to me at present there is little to be learned from those historians of morality paren especially englishmen en paren they themselves are usually quite unsuspiciously under the influence of a definitive morality and act unwittingly as its armour-bearers and followers, perhaps still repeating sincerely the popular superstition of Christian Europe, that the characteristic of moral action consists in abnegation, self-denial, self-sacrifice, or in fellow-feeling and fellow-suffering. The usual error in their premises is that insistence on a certain consensus among human beings, at least among civilized human beings, with regard to certain propositions of morality, and from thence they conclude that the propositions are absolutely binding even upon you and me, or reversely, they come to a conclusion that no morality at all is binding after the truth has dawned upon them that to different peoples moral valuations are necessarily different both of which conclusions are equally childish follies the error of the more subtle amongst them is that they discover and criticize the probably foolish opinions of a people about its own morality or the opinions of mankind about human morality generally they treat accordingly of its origin its religious sanctions the superstition of free will and such matters and they think that just by doing so they have criticized the morality itself but the worth of a precept quote, thou shalt unquote, is fundamentally different from and independent of such opinions about it and must be distinguished from the weeds of error with which it has perhaps become overgrown just as the worth of a medicine to a sick person is altogether independent of the question whether he has a scientific opinion about medicine or merely thinks about it as an old wife would do a morality could even have grown out of an error but with this knowledge the problem of its worth would not even be touched thus no one has hitherto tested the value of that most celebrated of all medicines called morality for which purpose it is first of all necessary for one to call it in question well that is just our work. 346. Our Note of Interrogation But you don't understand it. As a matter of fact, an effort will be necessary in order to understand us. We seek for words. 
we seek perhaps also for ears who are we after all if we want simply to call ourselves in older phraseologies atheists unbelievers or even immoralists we should still be far from thinking ourselves designated thereby we are all three in too late a phase for people generally to conceive for you my inquisitive friends to be able to conceive what is our state of mind under the circumstances no we have no longer the bitterness and passion of him who has broken loose who has to make himself a belief a goal and even a martyrdom out of his unbelief we have become saturated with the conviction paren, and have grown cold and hard by it en paren, that things are not at all divinely ordered in this world nor even according to human standards do they go on rationally mercifully or justly we know the fact that the world in which we live is ungodly immoral and quote, inhuman unquote. we have far too long interpreted it to ourselves falsely and mendaciously according to the wish and will of our veneration that is to say according to our need for man is a venerating animal but he is also a distrustful animal and that the world is not worth what we have believed it to be worth is about the surest thing our distrust has at last managed to grasp so much distrust so much philosophy we take good care not to say that the world is of less value it seems to us at present absolutely ridiculous when man claims to devise values to surpass the values of the actual world it is precisely from that point that we have retraced our steps as for the extravagant error of human conceit and irrationality which for a long period has not been recognized as such this error has its last expression in modern pessimism an older and stronger manifestation in the teaching of buddha but christianity also contains it more dubiously to be sure and more ambiguously but none the less seductive on that account the whole attitude of quote, man versus the world end quote, man as world-denying principle man as the standard of the value of things as judge of the world who in the end puts existence itself on his scales and finds it too light the monstrous impertinence of this attitude has dawned upon us as such and has disgusted us we now laugh when we find quote, man and world unquote, placed besides one another separated by the sublime presumption of the little word quote, and unquote. but how is it have we not in our very laughing just made a further step in despising mankind and consequently also in pessimism in despising the existence cognizable by us 
have we not just thereby become liable to a suspicion of an opposition between the world in which we have hitherto been at home with our venerations, for the sake of which we have perhaps endured life, and another world which we ourselves are? an inexorable, radical, most profound suspicion concerning ourselves, which is continually getting us Europeans more annoyingly into its power, and could easily face the coming generation with the terrible alternative, either do away with your veneration, or with yourselves. End quote. The latter would be nihilism. But would not the former also be nihilism? That is our note of interrogation. 347. Believers and their need of belief. How much faith a person requires in order to flourish, how much quote, fixed opinion, unquote, he requires which he does not wish to be shaken, because he holds himself thereby, is a measure of his power, paren, or more plainly speaking, of his weakness, en paren. Most people in old Europe, as it seems to me, still need Christianity, at present, and on that account it still finds belief. For such is man, a theological dogma might be refuted to him a thousand times, provided, however, that he has need of it, he would again and again accept it as, quote, true, unquote, according to the famous, quote, proof of power, end quote, of which the Bible speaks. Some have still need of metaphysics, but also the impatient longing for certainty, which at present discharges itself in scientific, positivist fashion among large numbers of the people, the longing by all means to get at something stable. Paren, while on account of the warmth of the longing, the establishing of the certainty is more leisurely and negligently undertaken, and paren. Even this, it's still the longing for a hold, a support, in short, the instinct of weakness, which, while not actually creating religions, metaphysics, and convictions of all kinds, nevertheless preserves them. In fact, around all these positivist systems, there fume the vapours of a certain pessimistic gloom, something of weariness, fatalism, disillusionment and fear of new disillusionment, or else manifest animosity, ill-humour, anarchic exasperation, and whatever there is of symptom or masquerade of the feeling of weakness. Even the readiness in which our cleverest contemporaries get lost in wretched corners and alleys, for example, in Waterlanderai, Paren, so I designate jingoism, the chauvinism in France, and Deutsch in German, and paren, or in petty ascetic creeds in the matter of Parisian naturalism. 
paren, which only brings into prominence and uncovers that aspect of nature which excites simultaneously disgust and astonishment. They like at present to call this aspect la verite verae, or in nihilism in the St. Petersburg style, paren, that is to say, in the belief in unbelief, even to martyrdom for it, en paren. This shows always and above all the need of belief, support, backbone and buttress. Belief is always most desired, most pressingly needed, where there is a lack of will. For the will, as a motion for command, is the distinguishing characteristic of sovereignty and power. That is to say, the less a person knows how to command, the more urgent is his desire for one who commands, who commands sternly, a god, a prince, a caste, a physician, a confessor, a dogma, a party conscience. From whence, perhaps, it could be inferred that the two world religions, Buddhism and Christianity, might well have the cause of their rise, and especially of their rapid extension, in an extraordinary malady of the will. And in truth, it has been so. Both religions, lighted upon the longing, monstrously exaggerated by malady of the will, for an imperative, a, quote, thou shalt, unquote a longing going the length of despair. Both religions were teachers of fanaticism in times of slackness of willpower, and thereby offering to innumerable persons a support, a new possibility of exercising will, an enjoyment in willing. For in fact, fanaticism is the sole, quote, volitional strength, unquote to which the weak and irresolute can be excited, as a sort of hypnosis of the entire sensory intellectual system, in favour of the overabundant nutrition, paren, hypertrophy, en paren, of a particular point of view, and a particular sentiment which then dominates. The Christian calls it his faith, when a man arrives at the fundamental conviction that he requires to be commanded, he becomes, quote, a believer, unquote. Reversely, one could imagine a delight and a power of self-determining, and a freedom of will, whereby a spirit could bid farewell to every belief, to every wish for certainty, accustomed as it would be to support itself on slender cords and possibilities, and to dance even on the verge of abysses. Such a spirit would be the free spirit par excellence. 348. The Origin of the Learned The learned man in Europe grows out of all the different ranks and social conditions, like a plant requiring no specific soil. On that account, he belongs essentially and involuntarily to the partisans of democratic thought. But this origin betrays itself. 
if one has trained one's glance to some extent to recognize in a learned book or scientific treatise the intellectual idiosyncrasy of the learned man all of them have such idiosyncrasy and if we take it by surprise we shall almost always get a glimpse behind it of the quote, adescendant history end quote, of the learned man and his family especially of the nature of his callings and occupations where the feeling finds expression quote, that is at last proved i am now done with it end quote. it is commonly the ancestor in the blood and instincts of the learned man that approves of the quote, accomplished work unquote, in the nook from which he sees things the belief in the proof is only an indication of what has been looked upon for ages by a laborious family as quote, good work unquote. take an example the sons of registrars and office clerks of every kind whose main task has been to arrange a variety of materials distribute it in drawers and systematize it generally evince when they become learned men, an inclination to regard a problem as almost solved when they have systematized it. There are philosophers who are at bottom nothing but systematizing brains. The formal part of the paternal occupation has become its essence to them. That talent for classifications, for tables of categories, betrays something. It is not for nothing that a person is a child of his parents. The son of an advocate will also have to be an advocate as investigator. He seeks, as a first consideration, to carry the point in his case. As a second consideration, he perhaps seeks to be in the right. One recognizes the sons of Protestant clergymen and schoolmasters, by the naive assurance with which as learned men they already assume their case to be proved when it has but been presented by them staunchly and warmly they are thoroughly accustomed to people believing in them it belongs to their father's quote, trade unquote. a jew contrarywise in accordance with his business surroundings and the past of his race is least of all accustomed in people believing him observe jewish scholars with regard to this matter they all lay great stress on logic that is to say on compelling assent by means of reasons they know that they must conquer thereby even when race and class antipathy is against them even when people are unwilling to believe them for in fact nothing is more democratic than logic it knows no respect for persons and takes even the crooked nose as straight Paren. in passing we may remark that in respect to logical thinking in respect to cleaner intellectual habits, Europe is not a little indebted to the Jews, above all the Germans, as being a lamentably dereasonable race, who, even at the present day, must always have their quote, heads washed unquote, in the first place.
Translator's footnote. In German, the expression Kampf zu waschen, besides the literal sense, also means, quote, to give a person a sound drubbing, end footnote. Wherever the Jews have attained to influence, they have taught to analyze more subtly, to argue more acutely, to write more clearly and purely. It has always been their problem to bring people, quote, to raison, end quote, end paren. Three, four, nine. The origin of the learned once more. To seek self-preservation merely as the expression of a state of distress, or of limitation of the true fundamental instinct of life, which aims at the extension of power, and with this in view often enough calls into question self-preservation and sacrifices it. It should be taken as symptomatic when individual philosophers, as for example the consumptive Spinoza, have seen and have been obliged to see the principal feature of life precisely in the so-called self-preservative instinct. They have just been men in states of distress, that our modern natural sciences have entangled themselves so much with Spinoza's dogma, paren, finally, and most grossly in Darwinism, with its inconceivably one-sided doctrine of the, quote, struggle for existence, end quote, end paren is probably owing to the origin of most of the inquiries into nature. They belong in this respect to the people. Their forefathers have been poor and humble persons. They knew too well by immediate experience the difficulty of making a living. Over the whole of English Darwinism there hovers something of the suffocating air of overcrowded England something of the odour of humble people in need and in straits. But as investigator of nature, a person ought to emerge from his paltry human nook, and in nature the state of distress does not prevail, but superfluidity, even prodigality to the extent of folly. The struggle for existence is only an exception a temporary restriction of the will to live. The struggle, be it great or small, turns everywhere on predominance, on increase and expansion, on power, in conformity to the will to power, which is just the will to live. 350. In honour of Hominis Religiosi the struggle against the church is most certainly paren, among other things, for it has a manifold significance and paren, the struggle of the more ordinary, cheerful, confiding, superficial natures against the rule of the graver, profounder, more contemplative natures. That is to say, the more maligned and suspicious men, who, with long-continued distrust in the worth of life, brood also over their own worth. The ordinary instinct of the people, its sensual gaiety, its, quote, good heart, unquote, revolts against them. 
The entire Roman Church rests on a southern suspicion of the nature of man, paren, always misunderstood in the north, en paren. A suspicion whereby the European South has succeeded to the inheritance of the profound Orient, the mysterious, venerable Asia, and its contemplative spirit. Protestantism was a popular insurrection in favour of the simple, the respectable, the superficial. Paren, the North has always been more good-natured and more shallow than the South. End paren. But it was the French Revolution that first gave the sceptre wholly and solemnly into the hands of the quote, good men. Unquote. Paren, the sheep, the ass, the goose, and everything incurably shallow, brawling, and fit for the bedlam of quote, modern ideas. End quote, end paren. 351. In honour of priestly natures. I think that philosophers have always felt themselves furthest removed from that which the people, paren, in all classes of society nowadays, en paren, take for wisdom, the prudent, bovine placidity, piety, and country parson meekness, which lies in the meadow and gazes at life seriously and ruminatingly. This is probably because philosophers have not had sufficiently the taste of the quote, people unquote, or of the country parson for that kind of wisdom. Philosophers will also perhaps be the latest to acknowledge that the people should understand something of that which lies furthest from them, something of the great passion of the thinker who lives and must live continually in the storm-cloud of the highest problems and the heaviest responsibilities. Paren, consequently, not gazing at all, to say nothing of doing so indifferently, securely, objectively, and paren. The people venerate an entirely different type of man, when on their part they form the ideal of a, quote, sage, Unquote. and they are a thousand times justified in rendering homage with the highest eulogies and honours to precisely that type of man, namely the gentle, serious, simple, chaste, priestly natures and those related to them. It is to them that the praise falls due in the popular veneration of wisdom. And to whom should the people ever have more reason to be grateful than these men who pertain to its class and rise from its ranks, but are persons consecrated, chosen, and sacrificed for its good? They themselves believe themselves sacrificed to God, before whom the people can pour forth its heart with impunity by whom it can get rid of its secrets, cares, and worst things. Paren, for the man who, quote, communicates himself, unquote, gets rid of himself, and he who has, quote, confessed, unquote, forgets, end paren. Here there exists a great need for sewers and pure cleansing waters, as required also for spiritual filth, 
and rapid currents of love are needed, and strong, lowly, pure hearts, who qualify and sacrifice themselves for such service of the non-public health department. For it is a sacrificing, the priest is, and continues to be, a human sacrifice. People regard such sacrificed, silent, serious men of quote, faith unquote, as quote, wise, unquote. that is to say, as men who have become sages, as quote, reliable unquote, in relation to their own unreliability. Who would desire to deprive the people of that expression and that veneration? But as is fair on the other side, among philosophers, the priest also is still held to belong to the quote, people, unquote, and is not regarded as a sage, because, above all, they themselves do not believe in quote, sages, unquote, and already sent quote, the people unquote, in this very belief and superstition. It is modesty which invented in Greece the word quote, philosopher. Unquote, and left it to the play-actors of the spirit, the superb arrogance of assuming the name, quote, wise, unquote. The modesty of such monsters of pride and self-glorification as Pythagoras and Plato. Three, five, two. Why we can hardly dispense with morality the naked man is generally an ignominious spectacle. I speak of us European males, paren, and by no means of European females, and paren. If the most joyous company at the table suddenly found themselves stripped and divested of their garments through the trick of an enchanter, I believe that not only would the joyousness be gone, and the strongest appetite lost, it seems that we Europeans cannot at all dispense with a masquerade that is called clothing. But should not the disguise of, quote, moral men, unquote, the screening under moral formulae and notions of decency, the whole kindly concealment of our conduct under conceptions of duty, virtue, public sentiment, honourableness and disinterestedness, have just as good reasons in support of it? Not that I mean hereby that human wickedness and baseness, in short, the evil wild beast in us, should be disguised. On the contrary, my idea is that it is precisely as tame animals that we are an ignominious spectacle and require moral disguising. That the, quote, inner man, unquote, in Europe, is far from having enough of intrinsic evil, quote, to let himself be seen, unquote, with it, paren, to be beautiful with it, end paren. The European disguises himself in morality, because he has become a sick, sickly, crippled animal, who has good reasons for being, quote, tame, unquote because he is almost an abortion, an imperfect, weak, clumsy thing. 
It is not the fierceness of the beast of prey that finds moral disguising necessary, but the gregarious animal, with its profound mediocrity, anxiety and ennui. Morality dresses up the European, let us acknowledge it, in the more distinguished, more important, more conspicuous guise, in, quote, divine, unquote, guise. Three five three, the origin of religions. The real inventions of founders of religions are, on one hand, to establish a definite mode of life and everyday custom, which operates as disciplina voluntatis, and at the same time does away with ennui, and on the other hand, to give to that very mode of life an interpretation by virtue of which it appears illumined with the highest value, so that it henceforth becomes a good with which people struggle and under certain circumstances lay down their lives. In truth, the second of these inventions is more essential. The first, the mode of life, has usually been there already, side by side, however, with other modes of life and still unconscious of the value which it embodies. The import, the originality of the founder of a religion, discloses itself usually in the fact that he sees the mode of life, selects it, and divines for the first time the purpose for which it can be used, and how it can be interpreted. Jesus, paren, or Paul, for example, found around him the life of the common people in the Roman province. A modest, virtuous, oppressed life. He interpreted it, he put the highest significance and value into it, and thereby the courage to despise every other mode of life. The calm fanaticism of the Moravians, the secret, subterranean self-confidence which goes on increasing, and is at last ready, quote, to overcome the world, unquote. Paren, that is to say, Rome, and the upper classes throughout the empire, and paren. Buddha, in like manner, found the same type of man. He found it, in fact, dispersed among all the classes and social ranks of the people, who were good and kind, paren, and above all inoffensive, and paren, owing to indolence, and who likewise, owing to indolence, lived abstemiously, almost without requirements. He understood that such a type of man, with all its vis inertiae, had inevitably to guide onto a belief which promised to avoid the return of earthly ill, paren, that is to say, labour and activity generally, end paren. This, quote, understanding, unquote, was his genius. The founder of a religion possesses psychological infallibility in the knowledge of a definitive, average type of souls, who have not yet recognized themselves as kin. It is he who brings them together. The founding of a religion, therefore, always becomes a long ceremony of recognition. 
354 the genius of the species the problem of consciousness paren or more correctly of becoming conscious of oneself meets us only when we begin to perceive in what measure we could dispense with it and it is at the beginning of this perception that we are now placed by physiology and zoology paren, which have thus required two centuries to overtake the hint thrown out in advance by leibniz end paren. for we could in fact think feel will and recollect we could likewise quote, act unquote, in every sense of the term and nevertheless nothing of all would require to quote, come into consciousness end quote. Paren, as one says metaphorically end paren. the whole of life would be possible without its seeing itself as it were in a mirror as in fact even at present the far greater part of our life still goes on without this mirroring and even our thinking feeling volitional life as well however painful the statement may sound to an older philosopher what then is the purpose of consciousness generally when it is in the main superfluous now it seems to me if you will hear my answer and its perhaps extravagant supposition that the subtlety and strength of consciousness are always in proportion to the capacity for communication of a man paren, or an animal end paren. the capacity for communication in its turn being in proportion to the necessity for communication the latter not to be understood as if precisely the individual himself who is a master in the art of communicating and making known his necessity would at the same time have to be the most dependent upon others for his necessities it seems to me however to be so in relation to whole races and successions of generations where necessity and need have long compelled men to communicate with their fellows and understand one another rapidly and subtly a surplus of the power and art of communication is at last acquired as if it were a fortune which had gradually accumulated and now waited for an heir to squander it prodigally paren the so-called artists are these heirs in like manner the orators preachers and authors all of them men who come at the end of a long succession quote, late born unquote, always in the best sense of the word and as we have said squanderers by their very nature end paren. granted that this observation is correct i may proceed further to the conjecture that consciousness generally has only been developed under the pressure of the necessity for communication that from the first it has been necessary and useful only between man and man paren, especially between those commanding and those obeying end paren, and has only developed in proportion to its utility 
Consciousness is properly only a connecting network between man and man. It is only as such that it has had to develop. The recluse and wild beast species of men would not have needed it. The very fact that our actions, thoughts, feelings and motions come within the range of our consciousness, at least a part of them, is the result of a terrible, prolonged, quote, must, unquote, ruling man's destiny. As the most endangered animal, he needed help and protection. He needed his fellows. He was obliged to express his distress. He had to know how to make himself understood. And for all this, he needed, quote, consciousness, unquote, first of all. Consequently, to quote, know unquote, himself what he lacked, to quote, know unquote, how he felt, and to quote, know unquote, what he thought. For, to repeat it once more, man, like every living creature, thinks unceasingly, but does not know it. The thinking which is becoming conscious of itself is only the smallest part thereof. We may say, the most superficial part, the worst part. This conscious thinking alone is done in words, that is to say, in symbols for communication, by means of which the origin of consciousness is revealed. In short, the development of speech and the development of consciousness, paren, not of reason, but of reason becoming self-conscious, go hand in hand. Let it be further accepted that it is not only speech that serves as a bridge between man and man, but also looks, the pressure and the gestures, our becoming conscious of our sense impressions, our power of being able to fix them, and as it were to locate them outside ourselves, has increased in proportion as the necessity has increased for communicating them to others by means of signs. The sign-inventing man is at the same time the man who has always more acutely self-conscious. It is only as a social animal that man has learned to become conscious of himself. He is doing so still and doing more and more. As is obvious, my idea is that consciousness does not properly belong to the individual existence of man, but rather to the social and gregarious nature in him. That, as follows therefrom, it is only in relation to communal and gregarious utility that it is finally developed and that consequently each of us, in spite of the best intention of understanding himself as individually as possible, and of, quote, knowing himself, unquote, will always just call into consciousness the non-individual in him, namely his, quote, averageness, unquote, that our thought itself is continuously, as it were, outvoted by the character of consciousness, by the imperious, quote, genius of the species, unquote, therein, and is translated back into the perspective of the herd.
fundamentally our actions are in an incomparable manner altogether personal unique and absolutely individual there is no doubt about it but as soon as we translate them into consciousness they do not appear so any longer this is proper phenomenalism and perspectivism as i understand it the nature of animal consciousness involves the notion that the world of which we can become conscious is only a superficial symbolic world a generalized and vulgarized world that everything which becomes conscious becomes just thereby shallow meagre relatively stupid as generalization a symbol a characteristic of the herd that with the evolving of consciousness there is always combined a great radical perversion falsification superficialization and generalization finally the growing consciousness is a danger and whoever lives among the most conscious europeans knows even that it is a disease as may be conjectured it is not the antithesis of subject and object with which i am here concerned i leave that distinction to the epistemologists who have remained entangled in the toils of grammar paren popular metaphysics and paren it is still less the antithesis of quote, thing in itself unquote, and phenomenon for we do not quote, know unquote, enough to be entitled to make such a distinction indeed we have not any organ at all for knowing or for quote, truth unquote. we quote, know unquote, paren, or believe or fancy in paren, just as much as may be of use in the interest of the human herd the species and even what is here called quote, usefulness unquote, is ultimately only a belief a fancy and perhaps precisely the most fatal stupidity by which we shall one day be ruined three five five the origin of our conception of quote, knowledge unquote. i take this explanation from the street i heard one of the people saying that quote, he knew me unquote. so i asked myself what do people really understand by knowledge what do they want when they seek quote, knowledge unquote? nothing more than that what is strange is traced back to something known and we philosophers have we really understood anything more by knowledge the known that is to say what we are accustomed to so that we no longer marvel at it the commonplace any kind of rule to which we are habituated all and everything in which we know ourselves to be at home what is our need of knowing not just this need of the known the will to discover in everything strange unusual or questionable something which no longer disquiets us is it not possible that it should be the instinct of fear 
which enjoins us to know. Is it not possible that the rejoicing of the discerner should be his rejoicing in that he regained the feeling of security? One philosopher imagined the world, quote, known, unquote, when he had traced it back to the, quote, idea, unquote. Alas, was it not because the idea was so known, so familiar to him? Because he had so much less fear of the, quote, idea, unquote. Oh, this moderation of the discerners! Let us but look at their principles and at their solutions of the riddle of the world in this connection. When they again find aught in things, among things, or behind things, that is unfortunately very well known to us, for example, our multiplication table, or our logic, or our willing and desiring, how happy they immediately are. For, quote, what is known is understood, unquote. They are unanimous as to that. Even the most circumspect among them think that the known is at least more easily understood than the strange. For example, it is methodically ordered to proceed outward from the, quote, inner world, unquote, from the, quote, facts of consciousness, unquote, because it is the world which is better known to us. Error of errors! The known is the accustomed, and the accustomed is the most difficult of all to, quote, understand, unquote. That is to say, to perceive as a problem, to perceive as strange, distant, quote, outside of us, unquote. The great certainty of the natural sciences in comparison with psychology and the criticism of the elements of consciousness, unnatural sciences, as one might almost be entitled to call them, rests precisely on the fact that they take what is strange as their object, while it is almost like something contradictory and absurd to wish to take generally what is not strange as an object. End of Book Fifth We Fearless Ones Part One